Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am in Wapping, the gem of Tower Hamlets in London. It is a small piece of city bound by the Thames to the south. Um, and then we've got the highway, which is one of the main arteries into London coming in from the east. Uh, and then it runs right the way across through London, right you know, right to West London, connects onto the embankment. Um, so it's, it's this kind of small bit of city which is kind of hemmed in by these two major immovable arteries. So there isn't really a lot of space or development or there isn't any kind of um, edges to this part of the city that kind of overflow and become flaccid and just dribble out. Um, and it's a very, very distinct part of London. It's kind of like its own ecosystem. It used to be home to the industrial wharves um, that would have been the main points of collecting big industrial shipping containers and there are stories of pirates and all sorts of fantastical things. And Wapping has a very distinct aesthetic to it. It has a very controlled material palette and a certain height as well the kind of wharf buildings which have all been now uh, revamped and refurbished into beautiful offices and luxury apartments um, and they all kind of give uh, riverfront property um, are all made out of brick and Wapping is one of these few places in London where the streets are still beautifully cobbled how long they're going to last for I don't know they do require a lot of maintenance but they look amazing and I'm just sitting here outside Metropolitan Wharf uh, this evening. It's about 11 o'clock. And it's, Metropolitan Wharf particularly is, is, very, is very beautifully lit. Uh, and the sort of sodium light from the street lamps gives the cobbled uh, floor a very kind of interesting luminescence effect. Uh, and that combined with this palette of brick which is on the surfaces of where you walk the pavements are all bricked they're all tiled as well um, the industrial bricks and then all the new buildings everyone has kind of they've had to they've had to use brick as the palette gives a very unique character to this part of town and a richness and a texture and something very human I mean I'm always a fan of bricks because it ultimately is a material that has been designed by human beings to fit in the hand, in the human hand. So there's something very connecting about seeing bricks. You can kind of, you can fathom it, you can understand. There's a history to bricks. You can kind of, you get a, a it's not a conscious thing, but unconsciously, you know that a, a hand placed those bricks, which gives it a for me anyway a kind of a connection a feeling to the place anyway that's my little my little ode to Wapping and I'm sure I'll talk more about this beautiful part of city soon so I'm just walking along Regent's Canal just underneath the bridge where it meets Broadway Market in East London love this bit of town I used to have my studio just around the corner it's a and today actually it's a beautiful sunny day which is uh, the first we've had this year where it's quite warm I'm able to wear just my jumper and not need a jacket and my scarf and it's not wet in any kind of way and I'm just wandering down the canal looking at all the the barges 
all the houseboats. And I think houseboats are actually a really interesting way of living in London. And I had the good fortune, actually, I don't know if it was good fortune, um, I did live in a barge for a little bit. It wasn't the best barge in the world, and I probably had very little boating experience and know-how. Um, and it was a little bit more like a kind of caravan that maybe had been sort of accidentally reversed into a ditch. So it was listing quite heavily, and um, it wasn't fully kitted out with adequate insulation. I didn't last in it very long, basically. I lasted about nine months. Every time I made a cup of tea, boiled the kettle, the whole fuses would go. However, the place was absolutely peaceful as anything. And uh, it was a very beautiful way of experiencing London uh, and living in the city, just having this kind of real deep connection with something natural, something peaceful. Um, and our waterways really provide that, not only just in terms of a, an additional place for accommodation but they are one of the most powerful aspects of any city to provide places of reflection contemplation peace um, and quiet and the canals in london are beautiful examples of of that kind of energy that they that they give off so i know a lot of people are bringing forward campaigns to reinvigorate London's underused waterways. Um, I interviewed Chris Roma Lee on the Business of Architecture recently, where he's gone through a process of bringing about um, a new swimming pool to be built into the Thames, like a floating bath in the Thames. And this is kind of a lot of stigma around the water of the Thames being utterly filthy and totally inhabitable and disease-ridden. It's all kind of not necessarily the truth. And we have these beautiful natural assets in our cities uh, and these man-made assets, such as the canals, which really are, there's so much scope for potential there. There really, really is. Um, and particularly on a day like this, where they're just kind of flooded with people, some of the most fantastic ways to experience busy metropolitan areas is to be walking under these kind of magnificent industrial bridges. You can kind of hear the sound shifting as I'm walking along. You can see the um, the water core sticks being reflected from the ripples of the water surface onto the underside of the metal rivets of the engineered um, bridges it's beautiful it's absolutely fantastic so as architects as designers as people we have these wonderful assets that can be reinvigorated and can be used further good evening ryan willard here uh Beautiful sunset I'm just witnessing over Dagenham this evening. But the building I want to discuss today is actually in Greenwich. Uh, yesterday I went and visited Rangers House, which is located in one of the Royal Parks near Blackheath. And it's quite an exquisite building. It's an English Heritage site, so English Heritage are the kind of custodians of it if you like i think the building is still owned by the crown or perhaps it's owned by the government i'm not actually quite sure on that um and the building itself would have housed or been home to various naval officers and royalty and you know that kind of lineage of person now inside of the 
house now is a art collection which once belonged to the gold and diamond magnate Sir Julius Werner. So the collection and the house don't actually have any relationship uh, historically, except for now they are combined. Um, the house itself, Ranger's house, became empty. The owners of the collections that was once exhibited or once held in the house took those and took them somewhere else. The house became free and the Werner collection used to be in either his house in Bedfordshire or the house in Bath. He owned many houses um, and I think they, you know, the, the Werner collection is now owned by a foundation. It's now a trust where the, the sort of descendants of Julius Werner uh, are shareholders and they kind of look after it. I think there was either a death in the family or I can't quite remember what happened, but essentially one of the houses that had this collection needed to be sold. Um, and what they did, what that meant was that the collection now no longer had a house to be put in and then we had the ranger's house that was now empty so there was some sort of deal that happened in the 80s and english heritage you know said we'll look after that collection it's all very fascinating how these kind of you know huge art collections get passed down how they get put into uh into trusts and then how you know they're kind of looked after by external you know bodies if you like organizations um, and how the kind of wealth is kind of passed on to generation to generation. It's quite complex, uh, but very fascinating. And for me, what was really interesting about the, about the building itself, I mean, it's a fine example of a Georgian Palladian-style mansion house, um, you know, the kind of typical old red stock brick that you might find in London buildings, uh, you know, all the fine symmetry and balance and proportions and uh, wonderful spaces in the house. Uh, but the collection itself for me was probably the most interesting thing as it spoke more about, I thought, a kind of interesting psychology of Sir Julius Werner. So Sir Julius Werner made his fortune in the gold and diamond trade in South Africa in about early part of the 19th century, latter part of the 18th century, um, you know, sort of before the First World War happened. And I suspect, I mean, they had, they alluded it to it a little bit in the collection there, you know, they had this kind of image of a gigantic pit where they were mining for gold or they were mining for diamonds and they had this kind of precarious um, pulley system where people would be sitting in the kind of cradle and there were like two ropes kind of going over this huge pit and sometimes those ropes would get a little bit unbalanced and the cradle would tip over and people would just literally fall to their death. Um, so you, you can imagine the health and safety standards were pretty much non-existent back in those days and also there's going to be a heavy, heavy disregard for human life i suspect in terms of the working conditions and of course you know the apartheid and slavery that would have been existing at that time in south in south africa so there's a heavy 
weight here. There's a heavy, like, human sacrifice, human loss of life as a result of how um, the, this fortune was amassed. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Um, but I'm I'm asserting that it's pretty. There's going to be some pretty dark stuff that would have happened, and that that Julius Werner would have been privy to, that he would have seen, um, and would have been calling shots on as well. Um, so the nature of the art collection, with that in as a kind of speculation and a context, um, the art collection was heavy in terms of its religious iconography, in terms of its just general levels of piousness and piety. Um, you know, there were Botticelli's, there were, um, you know, various bits of Renaissance artwork depicting scenes of Christ, um, Madonna, there was lots of medieval um, wood carvings, um, lots of depictions of the Bible. I mean, I, I, for me, really, that's what kind of kind of stood out, that there was a heavy sense of religious iconography that had been collected so when when you have a kind of collection like that this kind of reverence for uh for for a religious path or some you know asserting various strong christian values and then the how you know the dark side of you know the dark side of gold and diamond mining in south africa in the early part of the 19th century there becomes a very dark conflict a very sort of interesting you know glimpse into the psychology of that collection so it's it's fascinating it really is an interesting building well worth having a look uh highly recommended Good evening once again. So I'm going to continue on a little bit about some of the uh, English Heritage buildings that I've had the good fortune to be visiting recently. I got my English Heritage membership and have been enjoying it in the summer. I think it's one of the sort of best investments you can make of 50 quid. Uh, it gives you access to all sorts of fabulous buildings. I mean, as a Londoner, as someone who's been brought up in England... Like, it's so easy to forget the rich and well-preserved history that the UK has and the sort of abundance of manor houses and country estates and historical monuments that are literally just everywhere in the UK. And some of them have been exquisitely preserved. They've got teams of some of the world's best experts looking after them. And Elton Palace is, I think, one of the most fascinating brilliant buildings that you would never see have that the story of it you would never see happening nowadays so quick little sort of recap on it the original building uh was you know a royal palace henry the eighth would have grown up on the site many years ago um it kind of fell into disrepair. Most of it was destroyed except for the Great Hall. The Great Hall kind of suffered a lot of damage during the Civil War. It ended up being used as a barn at some point, but it's quite a fabulous piece of Tudor architecture, great vaulted wooden ceilings, um, absolutely you know, fabulous. But it fell into a pretty terrible state, and millionaires 
what were their names now? It was Virginia Courthold and her husband Stephen Courthold. Now Stephen Courthold had made his million. Well, he didn't. Her- he inherited his millions actually from the family estates or from the family industry who had made their money, their fortune through silk. And previously to that, I think it was in silverware. Um, but it's a you know he'd he'd inherited this vast fortune of money and what became a sort of philanthropist and a patron to the arts. So they acquired the site on a 99-year-old lease in the, I think it was before the Second World War, must have been in the 1930s at some point. And um, they had it on a 99-year lease and part of the agreement was they were allowed to pretty much build whatever they wanted to on site next to the Great Hall as long as they restored the Great Hall and maintained it. Now, this in local planning context and planning law and conservation and heritage um, constraints is unheard of. You just would not get anything like this through planning nowadays. But what they did was they built a fabulous... Uh, Art Deco style Italian villa next door, and they worked with some brilliant architects of the of the day. Um, they worked with. Um, oops, sorry. So sorry. Yeah, they built uh, this incredible extension and worked with some of the most fashionable architects of the day including uh, Rolf Engstromer, who designed the entrance to the house. So when you come in, you go into a very modern Scandinavian... It feels circular, the entrance. It's beautiful space, and it's got this kind of concrete domed ceiling to it with um, you know very nice architectural glass blocks just allowing and flooding the entire space with natural light. And then Italian interior designer Peter Malacrida uh, did a lot of the bedrooms. She, he did Virginia's boudoir. Uh, he would have done the dining room in there as well. So this whole sort of uh, building that was built onto the side of the Great Hall was just fabulous, very Hollywood, very glamorous, absolutely exquisite in terms of their taste uh, it was fun. That was the other thing. This whole house was a house that was designed for extravagant parties, for socialising, for networking. It was a very much a kind of, you know, a touch of glamour and Hollywood in south of London. Um, and interestingly, you know, there were some other kind of quirks to the house you know things like a flower room for example I quite like that that was a room just purely devoted to the preparation of fresh flowers that would be then put through the rest of the building there were strange link ways because they had a pet I think it was a pet lemur and um, called Manny I think was the name of the of the lemur anyway there was sort of, you know, little rooms or little kind of pathways that would connect uh, into each other that would allow the passage through for their for their exotic pets. The gardens are incredible as well. The whole site kind of, you know, had this kind of medieval ruins and walls that had become revealed. 
and it's just a lot, a lot of fun. Really, sort of wonderful place to go and visit. The whole building flows wonderfully on the inside. It kind of feels like a, you know, an ocean liner in many ways. Some of the, I mean, my sort of criticism of it is that it's it's a building that demands current occupation. So by becoming a sort of museum is bizarre. The in there's as an architect it's always a strange thing because it's wonderful to go and see the building as it was at a particular time and it's kind of been preserved um and obviously this has been restored back to that sort of glamorous period pre 1940s because um during the war the building got shelled a lot it got bombed um it sustained quite a bit of damage they ended up having to live in the bunker for a long period of time and then the courtholds actually ended up disappearing and relocating first to scotland and then they went to zimbabwe and they built another extravagant house there and then the house got passed on to the uh, uk the english military uh, and was used as a training center up until very recently when english heritage got back hold of it and they restored it back to its 1930s glamour so for me what's weird about it and kind of you know you can't get away from it but it is not lived in and the building needs to be lived in it's like screaming out for activity and it it works to an extent they have kind of like jazz um recitals and jazz you know improvisations rather in the great hall and they have these amazing uh you know it, it's great for visitors of the english heritage it's, and they've got a really really good audio system and tour around the place but it needs those kinds of parties it's screaming out for that kind of lifestyle uh it's screaming out for it it kind of needs a modern touch if you like you know it's it's fantastic classic design don't get me wrong but it wouldn't go amiss to have something really modern in there as well and have a total either refurbishment or you know the existing 1930s design is added to with with kind of modern pieces it's all very very possible and again it's just a, a result of the building not being lived in and loved by people with that similar sort of vision nonetheless it is absolutely wonderful and i was just can't recommend it enough out on paris go and see it